Uh, people ought to think carefully about right and wrong. Christians ought to think carefully about right and wrong. But I don't think many people think carefully about what's right and what's wrong. I think most people want to take what's right and what's wrong and they kind of like to boil it down into a simple slogan or a soundbite. They want to think carefully about this is, this is, how, this is how these things that are right and wrong, which, which a lot of us agree on, but these are how these things of matters of right and wrong ought to be played out on the practical level. How do, we, how do we actually practice right and wrong? And what do we do after wrong has been done? How do we respond to wrongdoing? I'm not sure that many people spend a lot of time thinking carefully about what's right and wrong. I don't think a lot of Christians think carefully about right and wrong. But we ought to. We ought to think carefully about right and wrong because we care about loving our neighbor. If we love our neighbor, then we're going to care about right and wrong. We're going to care about how to, how to, how to carry out right and wrong and, and respond to wrongdoing. What happens when we don't know what's right and what's wrong? What, what about happens when we don't think carefully? Well, normally we just shoot from the hip with our uninformed intuition. We want to have a mind that is informed. That's what I'm hoping for you today, is that you will, have, you will be informed. Your, your mind will be shaped. Your conscience, your, your consciousness of what is right and what's wrong will be shaped by God's Word so that you will know how to love your neighbor. Because we, we have to love our neighbor not just with, with uh, nice feelings, but with actual practice and with actual action. So today I hope that you'll be able to love your neighbor by thinking carefully about what is right and wrong. How do we live by what's right and what's wrong? Now today we are going to be, we're going to be starting out in, at the end of Exodus 20. If you're just now joining us, we have been walking our way through the book of Exodus and we have just finished talking about the Ten Commandments and we are now getting into this section that is called the Covenant Code. The Covenant Code is... One of the places in the Bible, when people are trying to read through their Bible in a year, they come to the Covenant Code and they go, whoo, goodness. Uh, you know, not many of us want to sit down and read legal texts for fun. Uh, but the Covenant Code has something there. It is God's words to us. Now, now then, the covenant co- what the Covenant Code does is it takes those ten commandments that God gives in chapter 20, and then it begins to apply them to the details of life. To the practical details of not only should you not murder, but this is actually what you should do when somebody does murder. Or, or not only should you not commit adultery, but this is actually how you should go about moving toward marriage or, or responding to marriage or, or responding to a, to a break in the marriage covenant. This is, not only should you not steal, but this is how you should respond when you do steal or when somebody steals from you. Or how you ought to think about other people's personal property. These are, these are things that get down into the nitty gritty details of everyday life. And so that's what, that's what the covenant code is, is doing but here's the the part that's hard for us is that this covenant code is not our covenant that is it's not our agreement that we have with God it's not our covenant and it's not our code so Hebrews 8 says that the old covenant this is the covenant made at Mount Sinai or the first covenant is obsolete it's it's done with it served its purpose to a large degree in pointing us toward Jesus Christ. Uh, in Romans 7, Paul uh, compares the Old Covenant to marriage. That when, uh, the marriage, when, when, a, when a woman is married to a husband, if her first husband dies, then she can remarry another husband. Well, Paul is saying the Old Covenant is dead and now we're married to a new covenant. Everything, everything in the law and everything in the covenant code and everything in the, that is given to us through the covenant is all filtered through the prism of the teachings of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ, the, the obedience of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the ascension of Jesus Christ, the, the, the right now rule of Jesus Christ, and the return of Jesus Christ. Everything is filtered through that so that it comes to us. It, it gives us information. It gives us God's word. It gives us understanding, but it does throw so through the teaching of Jesus Christ. And so practically what this normally means is that our our 
first response or our first obligation is to the teachings of Jesus Christ, both in his life and through the teachings of his apostles. It's not our covenant or our code. And uh, just as just an aside, kind of, the, the covenant code is not supposed to be reinstituted as a theocracy. One of the things that we understand about Israel is that what we would think of as Christians, or what we might think of as Christians, as the sphere of the state and the sphere of the church, in the old covenant they are combined. So there is no distinction between a, a political entity and a religious entity. It is, it is one. But there's no reason, based on the New Testament, based upon the whole of the teaching of the Scriptures, that we should expect in this age to have that reinstituted. Christians live in a, a large uh, diversity of countries and nations and come from, speak a lot of different languages and live in a lot of different cultures and live under a, a large number of governmental regimes. You can, you can live as a Christian faithfully, under a lot of different governments. And people, Christians do throughout the world, they, they have to navigate. Sometimes it's more difficult in some places than, than others, but they are all living with a God-honoring respect for the government, but living under different governments. Not trying to reinstitute that, nor are we expecting that to be, to be reinstituted at some point. Also, the, the covenant code does not return us to Eden. Sometimes when people are reading about the, the covenant code and they're reading about uh, slavery or they're reading about uh, what happens when there is a, a husband who takes on a second wife and doesn't support her. Listen, the covenant code is not trying to bring us back to Eden, nor is it trying to tell us what is going to happen in heaven. The covenant code is regulating sin. If, 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 it wasn't, if nobody murdered, you wouldn't have to have regulations about what to do when somebody murdered. If nobody ever committed adultery, you wouldn't have to have regulations about what to do when somebody committed adultery. If nobody ever stole, you don't have to have regulations about stealing. But we live in a fallen world. And you know where most of the difficult ethical questions come from? It's not because somebody didn't murder or didn't commit adultery or didn't steal or didn't bear false witness. It's what to do after they have. That's when the difficult ethical thinking comes in. That's when it's hard to make a decision. That's when it requires a, some wisdom to sort things out. Also, this is one last kind of barrier with the covenant code, is it is very foreign to us. We're talking about an ancient Near Eastern culture with a Mediterranean climate uh, where everything is based on agriculture. No, not many of us own any oxen or are worried about our oxen goring somebody. Okay. We think that ox gore is a bore, and, and so we don't really think about it. But the reality is, is that, that the same way that we can go to another country and we can begin to learn about their culture and their customs and maybe even learn something from them, how much more can we learn from the, from the way that the law, the way that God's commands are actually played out in a concrete place, in a concrete time. This is how you live this way. And there, there are many, many places where we can simply take the principle that's there and we can apply it to our own lives. Because we may not have oxen, but we all drive vehicles. We may not have to build parapets around our roof, but we all have, we all have places where we want to keep people from endangering themselves. And so we take those principles and we apply them. And this is the reason why we're looking at this. Galatians 5.14 says, this is the whole fulfillment of the law, love your neighbor. Might be a different time and a different place and a different culture and a different even covenantal circumstances and all those kind of things. But, but these covenantal codes are showing us how do you love your neighbor in a particular place and time. May not be our place in time, but they can inform us and give us wisdom from God's word about how to love people now. So with that in mind, let's look at what this says. Let's start with uh, regulations about idolatry and worship. Well, we're covering a lot of ground today, so you're just going to have to strap in and go as fast as I can go. All right, so here we go. Looking at Exodus 20, regulations about idolatry and worship. We're going to look first at Exodus 20, verses 22 through 26, Exodus 20, verses 23 through 26, says, The Lord said to Moses, 
Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have taught with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it, and you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. This is God taking his commands about, do not have any other gods besides me, or do not make any graven image and put it beside me, not, do not make any graven image of me. And he's saying that and applying it, he's even saying it about the altar. So altars uh, throughout the course of the patriarch's lives, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they would move to a place and they would build an altar. Uh, Moses even built an altar in Exodus 17. Uh, and so these altars were places where there was going to be sacrifice. But God says, don't make some big fancy altar. Instead, just make it of earth. If you make it out of stone, make it, make it very simply. Don't, don't chisel it. Do you know why he said that? Because this one theologian said a long time ago, the human heart is an idol factory. We can make an idol out of almost anything. We can make an idol out of buildings and cathedrals and country churches, and we can make idols out of anything that we own, and we can make idols out of, out of anything that we put our hand to. We, make it, we can make it really, really nice, and then we can devote ourselves to it above God. God knows that about us. God knows that about Israel. Don't do that. Don't, don't make it fancy. Uh, in, in Israel's uh, history, co- going forward, they can even take this, this rod that has the bronze snake on it later on in the book of Numbers that's supposed to represent the redemption that God gives for those who are sinning. They even make that into, a, they make that into an idol. They can make an idol out of anything. So we ought to know that about ourselves. We can make idols out of almost anything. Don't make an idol. Don't put anything beside the Lord. Don't do anything that would present yourself as unclean. Don't bring anything unworthy before the Lord. God gives a lot of regulations in these chapters about idolatry. He says, do not engage in sorcery. In fact, do not permit a sorceress to live. Uh, he's, He's making the case that don't engage in any kind of syncretism, like combining of religions. Don't don't go out and and, uh, engage in any kind of occult practices. Uh, He tells them, make sure that you give to me what belongs to me. God had a kind of uh, offering system that said, be quick to give to me what belongs to me. And when you do give to me, make sure that you give me your best. Idolatry. If we're not doing these things, if we're not giving our best to the Lord, in, in 2 Corinthians 8, you know what Paul says? He says that the Corinthians first gave themselves to the Lord and then to him. If we give ourselves to the Lord, if we give ourselves and everything that we have to the Lord, our giving will take care of itself. But if we withhold what belongs to the Lord, if we're not quick to give it to him, we will be stingy. And if, as Jesus says, if the eye is dark, the whole body is dark. If the eye is stingy, the whole life is stingy and un- unrighteous before God, unpleasing to God. You can flip over a page. I want to read in chapter 23 as well. Uh, chapter 23, verses 14 through 17. This is where uh, God gives them the, the regulations about their, about their worship, about their feasts. So we're still looking at regulations about idolatry and worship. But look at verses 14 through 17. Exodus 23, verses 14 through 17. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor. Of what you sow in the field, you shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year. When you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor, three times in the year you shall all your males appear before the Lord your God. We've actually read about that first feast, the feast of unleavened bread. That's what goes along with the Passover. That's when Israel commemorated the fact that God redeemed them out of slavery. It was through the death of the lamb in their place so that, so that the avenging angel passed over their houses. God bought them. God purchased them. It was the blood of the lamb that, that paid the price for their redemption. In the same way, Jesus Christ, his death ba- pays for us. It purchases us. It buys us. We belong to God. He is our redeemer. He is the one who redeemed us or paid the price for us. 
The other two feasts, maybe we could summarize them as they're, they're built around the agricultural year. But when you brought in that first fruits, that is, that first bit of grain or harvest that said, wow, it looks like, looks like this is what the harvest is going to be. That was kind of an indicator. You bring it to God because you say, God gave me this. And at the end of the harvest, when you bring everything in, at the end of the harvest, you say, God gave me this. You, you honor God and you acknowledge God and you recognize God. Don't we do that? Doesn't Jesus teach us to do that when we pray? Give us this day our daily bread. We're acknowledging that God is our creator. God cares for us in every way. He cares for us as creator. We are not self-sustaining. God sustains us. Only God is the self-sustaining, self-sufficient one. We depend upon God. We depend upon God as our creator, the one who gives us every good thing to enjoy. And we depend upon God as our redeemer, the one who bought us and paid the price for us to be freed from the slavery of sin. Let us trust God and rely upon God. So we see regulations about idolatry and worship. Next, we're going to see regulations about workers. Flip back over to chapter 21. We're going to read uh, Exodus 21, verses 1 through 6. It says, Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children. I will not go out free. His master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door of the, or the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. Uh, the word that's translated slave here, it could be translated as servant or a worker. It's probably not talking, it's, it's not at all talking about the kind of slavery that we think about when we think about the, the slave trade or the Caribbean slave trade or, or what was common with the European colonies and, and even the history of the United States of America. It was not a race-based slavery. It's probably better to think of it as contract work. The best parallel that we would have for it in our day would probably be military service. Once you commit yourself to military service, you don't just decide one day, hey, I'm going to put him out two weeks' notice and go do something else. You, you, are, you are committing yourself. The, the, the military is going to take care of all of your needs. It's going to train you. And then uh, after you have fulfilled your service, uh, you're, going to, you're going to go out. But, but you're committing yourself. Well, this is what was happening in Israel. And you understand, people didn't just decide, hey, I'm, I'm going to get this job and then I'm going to drive to this job and then I'm going to drive back home. You are a farmhand. You are going to go and live where the, the, the owner of the business lived, the owner of the farm lived, and you were going to live there and be a farmhand there, and you were going to commit yourself there. And so there were these regulations around how you were supposed to treat your workers. The owner is going to take care of all your needs. And the same way that sometimes people use military service as a way of getting ahead in life, maybe paying for college or getting some training, people are using the same thing here. They were committing themselves to this owner, Maybe they, weren't the, maybe they weren't the firstborn son who was going to take, take over the family farm. So they were going to go work for and apprentice to somebody else. And then they were going to have their needs taken care of. And they were going to be trained in the process. They were going to be taken care of in the process. One of the things that happens later on, some of the regulations that go along with slavery, is that, that there were, you, you could have corporal punishment for a slave. Again, this, is not, this is, shouldn't be so strange for us. If you go to West Point and you do something wrong, they're going to punish you with corporal punishment. It's not as severe as it might have been back uh, uh, 100 years ago, but it is going to be there. In fact, corporal punishment has been common throughout the world all the way up until the post-industrialized West a few decades ago. In fact, I still think it is prudent and wise for parents to spank their children. But the same way that there are limitations and there, are, there, there should be limits on what that should look like, there were limits on corporal punishment in the Bible. There have always been limits. If a slave were harmed, if he were abused, then he would still receive the payment or have his debts paid off, and yet he would go free. And so that was a way of... Now, again, this is not bringing us back to the Garden of Eden. This is not the way that things are, this is not necessarily telling us the way things are going to be in heaven. 
but it is regulating how a worker can be treated. You can't mistreat them. You can't, you can't treat them like they are a piece of meat or a piece of property. In fact, if an, if an owner in the process of, of disciplining his servant, if the servant died, then he was going to be guilty of murder and punished accordingly, which meant capital punishment. Now, there are a couple other things that might relate to this, especially as it, as it applies to our own situation. In the past and the history of the United States, uh, there was race-based slavery. But one of the things that was prohibited in the code is what's called, what they used to call man-stealing, kidnapping, normally in order to sell somebody into slavery. But if you were guilty of taking somebody, or if you were even found in the possession of somebody who had been kidnapped, say you were a slave trader, you couldn't just say, well, I wasn't the one who kidnapped them. No, if you were in the possession of someone who had been stolen or kidnapped in order to be sold into slavery, you were to face the death penalty. That was the way that the covenant code says, this is how we value human beings. You cannot take them and make them somebody else's property. If society, if European society, if colonial society had recognized and faithfully applied the wisdom of this command, then there would have been no slave trade. There would have been no race-based slavery in the history of the United States. It wasn't, because, it wasn't because the Bible justified it. It was because they misinterpreted and misunderstood what the Bible was teaching. They misused what the Bible was teaching. And this also should be something that should help us to avoid and to defend the Bible against the slanders of, of outsiders. People who look at passages like this and say, look at what the Bible says. If it were up to you Christians, there would still be slavery. It was Christians who led the ab- to the abolition of slavery, both in Europe first and then in the United States. It was Christians who fought for that. It was, they were based upon Christian thinking. That's the reason why we need to think carefully about right and wrong today. Is because there are things where people are not thinking carefully about right and wrong, and therefore they are committing egregious, wicked acts in the world. We ought to be thinking carefully about it. What's more, this is uh, human trafficking around the world is still a, a problem. It is still something that goes on. And we ought to be opposed to it in every way that we possibly can. Because we don't believe that people are property. We don't believe that the people who work for us are our property. They are not, they are not to be used by us. They are not meat for us. They are people to be cared for their lives are to be preserved they're to be they're to be loved as our neighbor the people who work for us and work with us are our neighbor whom we are to love all right next we'll look at regulations about marriage pick up in exodus 21 verses 7 through 11 it says when a man sells his daughter as a slave she should not go out as the male slaves do If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Again, this is one of those areas where everything is very foreign to us. We're talking about an arranged marriage here. And part of that arranged marriage might look like a, a daughter who is of age going to work at another farm. And it might be even be part of a betrothal process. So let's say a, a man and uh, uh, two, two fathers get together and they decide, hey, our, I like your family, you like our family, your son likes our daughter, our daughter likes your son. We're, why don't you let her come and work for us and he is supposed to treat her like a daughter and care for her and then when, when it's time when the appropriate engagement period or betrothal period has gone by then they would marry now then this sounds really foreign to us uh, because um, well it may be that we just don't really care about sexual purity the way they did back then but the reality is, is that this is the way it was played out. And, and then 
if, if the son or the man decides that he doesn't want to marry her, then she can be redeemed. That is, she can go back and live with her father and maybe start the whole process over again. If we had a much better way of getting people married, we might be critical of this, but we really don't. So maybe we should just be careful. All right? So looking at that, now then, the point I really wanted to look at was verses 9 through 11. He says, hey, if he takes on a second wife and he doesn't provide for his wife, give her food and clothing and her marital rights, this is probably what Paul is basing 1 Corinthians 7 on when he says that, that husbands and wives should be giving conjugal rights to one another. He's building off of this. But when he doesn't do that, she should be free to go. Now then, the way that I think it's best for us to understand that the Bible's teaching on marriage is that when either partner so severs the marriage covenant, they break it, then the innocent party, so to speak, should be able to go free. That is when divorce is justified. Now, the only two specific cases that that is talked about in the New Testament is going to be in cases of sexual immorality or adultery or in cases of abandonment. But I think if we look here at chapter 21, there's at least some understanding of, of a more expansive way of understanding this. Like if, like if God is saying that a, a wife can go free if she's not given the food that she needs, how much more might we be able to say if her physical life is endangered because of physical abuse? Is that justified? I don't think we can delve into that as, as deeply as we would like today. But I think it suggests to us that there are, there are ways of understanding the breaking of that covenant. That means that sometimes in order to protect the innocent party, who is often a vulnerable woman, although it sometimes also, also could be a man, that we care about that innocent party. We care about protecting them. And so that means that we sometimes divorce is legitimized or justified. Again, it's not bringing it back to the Garden of Eden. The way it was in the Garden of Eden was that man and woman were supposed to be together forever until death. Or, in fact, there was no death. But they were to become one flesh. But here God is telling us this is how you regulate these things when there is sin. When there is sexual immorality or abandonment or material abandonment. That's how we ought to think about these things. Look at one other place about on marriage. Look at Exodus 22, verses 16 and 17. Just flip over, look over at the opposite page. It says, if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Again, something unusual for us. Uh, but we're talking about a, a betrothal period, a, an arranged marriage. We're talking about something where a man seduces a, a, we're talking about, in fact, regulations around what we would call elopement. That is, going off and getting married without family input, without family legitimization. And so that's what this man is doing. He's trying to have the benefits of marriage without the commitment of marriage. Now that doesn't apply to our world, obviously. Nobody's trying to do that. But that's what this man is trying to do. He's trying to have sexual fulfillment without the commitment of marriage. But you know the reason why God regulates that in the Bible? Is because if you don't have that, all the society starts to break down. If you have people having children or having sexual relations outside of marriage, that destroys the fabric of society. Now then, he's saying, though, that you can't do that. You have, to, you have to have this marriage legitimized. It has to go through the father, which in this case, he has to pay his respects to the father, which in this case means actual money, okay? All right, so, but that's, that's the way they did it. This, is, this also should clue us in. Now, it might look different at 25 than at 15, but in all cases... The person who is in the best position to watch out for a vulnerable single woman is her father. And that's what we ought to be doing. We fathers ought to be watching out for our single adult daughters until they're married. We even do this. Like we see this happening in marriage ceremonies where the father gives away the bride. That's largely symbolic. 
What we ought to be at doing as fathers, though, is taking some substance and adding it to that symbol. We ought to be preparing our daughters, preparing our children for marriage, preparing our daughters for marriage, protecting our daughters in marriage. Listen, the feminism, especially radical feminism, and the sexual revolution have not liberated women. They have made women more vulnerable. And the Me Too revolution is not going to take that vulnerability away. Only a commitment to biblical sexual ethics is going to protect and preserve and care for people the way that God intended. And so we ought to think carefully about this. Again, you're, you're a father. You got a, a lot of you have, are, are fathers of daughters who are like 10 years old. You better start thinking you should think about how do I care for my daughter all the way until she's married. You ought to be thinking that way. You ought to be caring for your daughter that way. Not in, a, not in, a, not in a, an overbearing or burdensome way, but in a fatherly, caring, loving kind of way. You ought to be caring and shepherding and loving your daughter until you pass her off to another trustworthy man of godly character. All right. So we look at regulations about marriage. Now let's look at regulations about murder. Look at Exodus 21, verses 12 through 14. It says, Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not die and wait for him, but God let him fall into, the, in, into his hand, then, he, then uh, I will appoint to you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Uh, the way that God states the value of a human life is that you, if you take a human life, you deserve capital punishment. You deserve the greatest level of punishment because human beings are made in God's image. So if you take somebody's life who is made in God's image, then you yourself deserve to die. That's the way that God states the value of a human life. But he also says, hey, we're living in a fallen world. Accidents happen. You know, in Israel, somebody get run over by a wagon. An axe head would fly off the axe handle, hit somebody in the head. Accidents happen. People die. If that happened, if there was, if there was an accident and somebody died, that person's not guilty of murder. It's regrettable. It's unfortunate. It's terrible. We mourn it. We live in a corrupt world, though, where things, where accidents like that happen. And so that person is not supposed to be punished for murder now then there are a few other things in here so there are uh, i mentioned before the ox goring so uh there later on uh the regulations say hey if you have an ox and the ox is known to gore people and it gets out and it gores somebody to death then who's responsible for that well the ox has to die and the person who owns the ox has to die so it's not just when you lie and wait for somebody to kill them that you're responsible for somebody else's life if somebody else dies because of your negligence then you're responsible for their life. You're responsible for their death. You're responsible for the equivalent of their murder. Now then, we don't have ox. We do operate large pieces of machinery. We have teenagers who operate large pieces of machinery that can kill people. You know, and actually sometimes we're critical of our society, but our, our society actually has a lot of things that protect, they're intended to protect human life in this way. You go through a school zone and it says 25. And it's got little children crossing. It's because you want to preserve life. Or you see all those signs that, you know, drive here like your children live here. It's because you're trying to preserve human life. You have, you have mothers against drunk driving. It's because of a desire to, to preserve human life. It's because you don't want to see people killed out of negligence. But if you do kill somebody out of negligence, it's, it's your fault. You've broken that sixth commandment. You've broken the, the command, do not murder. We ought to be careful. This is, why, this is why the details matter. We ought to be careful not only, hey, don't murder somebody, but provide for other people, preserve other people's lives, watch out for them. So we have regulations about murder. Next we see regulations about fathers and mothers. Look at chapter 21. We'll look at verses 15 and verse 17. It says, whoever strikes his mother or his, his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to, put to death. It's primarily talking about adult children striking their parents. And so the idea there is the reason why there are such severe penalties for that is that if uh, 
parents aren't caring for their children while their children are young, or if their children aren't taking care of their parents while their parents are old, then again, society is devastated. The bond between parents and children is lifelong, a lifelong bond of respect and honor. And if you're willing to go to the point to where you would curse or repudiate your responsibility to care for your, for your, your parents or, or curse your parents or strike your parents, then, then God sees that as worthy of the death penalty. He sees that worthy of judgment. He sees that as something that is so terrible that it must not be. Now then, one of the things that older theologians would do is they would connect the honor that's there for father and mother to also extend it to honor for other people in authority. And later on in chapter 23, uh, in the covenant code, there is this uh, saying there about you shall not disrespect a ruler of your people. This is reinstated in the New Testament. Restated in Romans 13, that God appoints the rulers of every nation. You're not to dishonor them. Even Paul himself at the end of the book of Acts says, you shall not do this. You shall not disrespect a ruler of your people. Now then, this command did not stop John the Baptist from speaking out against Herod's wrongdoing when he committed adultery with his brother's wife. And it shouldn't stop us from speaking out against the wrongdoing of political officials or against rulers. It also doesn't mean that we're not able in prudent and proper ways to speak out against policies that we see are wrong or to in some ways protest in legitimate ways but we shouldn't curse a ruler of our people we should not speak disrespectfully or dishonor those who rule over us you know who decided that they would rule over us god did for good and for bad god decides who rules over all people he's the one who puts them in place some rulers are easier to live under Some rulers are difficult to live under. We are to honor all for the sake of the name of Christ and for God's sake, we are to honor those who are in authority over us. All right, regulations about property. Let's look at chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. It says, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he, is, if he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. You see what happens if a person steals? If they steal and destroy the property, restitution is four or five times as much. You pay it back. One of the things that, that is... So interesting, one of the stories in the New Testament that connects with this is the story of Zacchaeus. Maybe you know the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, all right, climbs up in a sycamore tree so that he could see Jesus. He's also a dirty, filthy, rotten tax collector who has extorted more money from people than he ought to have. And Jesus comes to him and says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. And he comes to his house and Zacchaeus believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and the immediate thing that Zacchaeus the tax collector the thief does is he says I'm going to pay back four times as much he's going to make restitution when salvation comes to a person's life when it comes to the life of a thief it looks like repentance and repentance looks like restitution paying back what you owe now then there, if, there's, if the property is still there, you pay back double. But it's not just if you steal the property. It's also if property is destroyed through your negligence. Your animals get over in somebody else's field, destroys their property, destroys their livelihood. Earlier in chapter 21 is if, if an animal fell into a pit and was killed, you're responsible for that. You're not just watching out, you're not just avoiding stealing, you're also respecting and watching out for other people's property in chapter 22 there are rules about what if you're what if you've borrowed something from somebody and you lose it well you have to pay it back from the very best of what you have 
listen, that, this, is about, this is about the things that we don't like to think about because it hurts our brain. But this tells us that we ought to be very careful about paying people back what they owe and being very careful with other people's property. Because that's what God intends. That's how we love our neighbor. All right, we're going to move a little faster now. Regulations about bearing false witness. Look at chapter 23, verses 1 through 3. Uh, you should not spread a false report. You should not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You should not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. First thing is, regulation about false report. Do not spread a false report. Seems easy enough until you hand somebody Facebook or Twitter and, and I think that this goes, uh, it, this goes for politics, for people in, in all parties and both parties and all kinds of people who, 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 who post things and, and it goes to all levels of life that we spread things that are false about people. This is your responsibility to your neighbor's name, that you would take care of their name the same way that you would want your name to be taken care of. Do that. Do that when it comes to politics. Do that when it comes to your favorite sports teams. Do that when it comes to, your, to, to all your celebrities and all the other kind of things that you care about. Care about people's names. You're supposed to protect their name. He says more than that, though. Uh, do not join hands with a malicious witness. Don't join in with a conspiracy. You only need two witnesses to convict somebody. You'd, if you get two people who can join in with a conspiracy to destroy somebody else, they can do it. Don't join in that conspiracy. In fact, if, the, if all the crowd gets together, if it's a mob that wants to kill somebody else, that wants to see somebody else taken down, but you see that it's wrong, you don't go along with the mob. You don't join the mob. You think this doesn't happen? Listen, it all over, uh, you can go back and look at multiple instances in the past year where because somebody posted something or because somebody did something and now it's captured on, on video and then everybody piles on to destroy that person's character. That's wrong. Christians ought to have nothing to do with that. The last thing, that last verse there says, do not join in, uh, in with a false sense of compassion in siding with the poor. Now then, we're going to see that we have to care about the poor because they have, they're vulnerable but sometimes out of a false sense of compassion and a false sense of mercy, or sometimes because some people are using the poor to advance their own agendas, people say, well, we ought to take down these, these people who are wealthy or have privileges or advantages. We ought to watch out for the poor, but we ought not use the, the name of the poor in order to drag other people down or take what belongs to other people. We have to respect other people, their names and their property. All right, regulations about loving your enemy. Look at verse, uh, chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. says, if you uh, meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it, rescue it with him. Did anybody think that in Matthew 5, when Jesus said to love your enemies, he came up with that? out of the blue he certainly had the authority to do that but it, was, it wasn't something new it had always been the case that even if he's your enemy and you can even see there in verses four and five that stated two different ways if you don't like him or he doesn't like you it doesn't matter you see him in need you care for him jesus tells us a parable like this he takes a a hated type of person he takes a samaritan he takes, a, he takes an outcast. He takes an outsider. He takes something, somebody that everybody would have looked at as low down and dirty. And he has that good Samaritan come by and take care of the man. Because that's how you're supposed to take care of your neighbor. And then Jesus says, go and do likewise. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be watching out even for the one who hates us, or the one that we have difficulty getting along with. We're supposed to care for them as our neighbor. Regulations about the vulnerable. This is our last section here. Look at uh, Exodus 22, 21 through 27. Exodus 22, verses 21 through 27. He says, You should not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, 
For you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with the sword and your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him. And you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's uh, cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. A sojourner, an immigrant, somebody who is far away from the, from the protection of their family structures, who is an outsider in society, they are vulnerable. Israel should have known this kind of vulnerability because they, that's what they were in Egypt. And so God says, do not oppress them. Do not take advantage of them. Same thing with a widow. Normally, uh, a woman would have either a father or a husband who would watch out for her, who would represent her in society in some way, keep people from taking advantage of her because she was the way that First Peter, Peter says it in 1 Peter 3, because she was a weaker vessel, at least physically less strong. What about a widow who doesn't have anybody to watch out for her? Don't take advantage of her. Same thing with a fatherless child. Normally a father would, would be there to, to watch over his child, even into adulthood, to, to see him on his way, to represent him, to make sure people didn't take advantage of him. You don't take, a, take advantage of the father's child. And if you do, God will make your wife a widow and your children fatherless. See, we live in a world where sometimes justice isn't always done. At its best, human justice can only approximate God's justice. But for all the people, all the vulnerable who are oppressed, all the injustice in the world, God will do justice. So if the policeman doesn't see you, if the judge doesn't convict you, if there is no crime, that doesn't mean that you're off the hook. There's a judgment day for all mankind. And God will bring every thought and deed into judgment. He also says, let's see, I'm looking... Uh, in verses uh, finding my spot here, I'm sorry. Well, flip over in your uh, in your Bibles. Oh, I'm sorry. The the part about money lending, he says, make sure that you don't take a person's essentially their last dollar, like a cloak would be the last person that a person slept in. Don't take the last thing that they have. Do you know that this is the reason why Christians have always and still should oppose uh, things like casinos and payday lenders and lotteries? Because those, those businesses prey on the poor. And you know what? A casino will take your last dollar. It doesn't care about you. A payday lender will take your last dollar. And then make you pay the interest on it. God says don't do that. Last thing that we'll look at, still talking about the vulnerable, look at uh, Exodus 23 verse 9. Last verse we'll look at. He says, you shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Israel knew what it was like to be immigrants or sojourners or workers in a foreign land they knew what it was like to be oppressed they knew what it was like to be mistreated and God redeemed them out of it so don't oppress anybody like that love your neighbor do not oppress anyone do not take advantage of anyone do not hurt anyone do not harm anyone do not allow anybody to be hurt on your watch make sure that you are putting up putting up barriers and, and watching out for people. Make sure that you are preserving life, preserving property, preserving people's names, preserving people's marriages, caring about people. Make sure that you're doing that. Why do Christians do that? Why do Christians care about the details? Why do we care about restitution? Why do we care, why do we care about how, how people get married? Or why do we care about people's lives? Why do we care about, uh, one of the things I left out is, is that a, a pregnant woman, her, the, the, the child in her womb, 
counted as a person. Why do we care about that? Why do we care? We love because God first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. We love because God first loved us. God sent Jesus Christ, sent his son into the world to pay the price, to to be a propitiation, that is, a wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins. We were slaves to our sins. We were doomed. We We were doomed to punishment and to death. And to eternal death, to eternal, to eternal everlasting punishment in hell. We were doomed. We were lawbreakers. We know what it's like to stand under the sword. To know that we are the ones who deserve death. And then God sends his son for us to love us. This law, this law code, Jesus Christ fulfilled it exactly. This, this law, these law codes, these laws of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant, that we see as burdensome, Jesus took the burden on himself and died on the cross and bore our sin. God looked at us in mercy and had mercy on us in our sin. And Jesus says, as you would receive mercy, so show mercy to others. As you would have it dealt to you, so you deal it out to others. The golden rule is from Jesus Christ. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Jesus says, the the two commandments on which all the law and the prophets hang. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor. If you've wronged your neighbor, it's not in the law code. It's what Jesus teaches that you should go and make it right. If you've stolen something, broken something, harmed somebody, you go and make restitution. You've gossiped about somebody, slandered somebody, you go and do do all that you can to make it right. You watch out for the widow and the orphan and the vulnerable. Because God came and saved us. We are, we were, and we are as helpless in our in our life as we could possibly be. And God saved us. If God loved us, we ought to love our neighbor. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, uh, there is no one who is compassionate and merciful as you are. There is no one just and righteous as you are. Grant that we would become like you in every way. That as you care about people, you care about people in the details of their lives so that not a hair of our head falls to the ground and you don't know about it, you don't determine it, you don't watch out for it. Not even a sparrow falls that you have not ordained it. That you're watching over our lives to care for us preserve us you are our creator you are the one who gives us food every day you are our redeemer you're the one who sent your son to die for our sins as those who have been loved grant that we would love our neighbor we love our neighbor by watching out for their lives watching out for their property watching out for their name watching out for those who are vulnerable loving our enemies grant that we would be perfect as you are perfect By the power of your spirit, make us like yourself. Make us like your son, Jesus Christ, who had mercy on those who needed mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.